Welcome to the Enchanted Library, where we turn the pages of books, beautiful and old, living and magical. It's time to curl up, get cozy, and join us on an adventure. Today we're reading from 50 Famous Stories Retold by James Baldwin. The Story of William Tell The people of Switzerland were not always free and happy as they are today. Many years ago, a proud tyrant whose name was Gessler ruled over them and made their lot a bitter one indeed. One day this tyrant set up a tall pole in the public square and put his own cap on top of it and then he gave orders that every man who came into the town should bow down before it. But there was one man, named William Tell, who would not do this. He stood up straight with folded arms, and laughed at the swinging cap. He would not bow down to Gessler himself. When Gessler heard of this, he was very angry. He was afraid that other men would disobey, and that soon the whole country would rebel against him. So he made up his mind to punish the bold man. William Tell's home was among the mountains, and he was a famous hunter. No one in all the land could shoot with bow and arrow so well as he. Gessler knew this, and so he thought of a cruel plan to make the hunter's own skill bring him to grief. He ordered that Tell's little boy should be made to stand up in the public square with an apple on his head, and then he bade Tell shoot the apple with one of his arrows. Tell begged the tyrant not to have him make this test of his skill— what if the boy should move? What if the bowman's hand should tremble? What if the arrow should not carry true? Will you make me kill my boy? he said. Say no more, said Gessler. You must hit the apple with your one arrow. If you fail, my soldiers shall kill the boy before your eyes. Then, without another word, Tell fitted the arrow to his bow. He took aim and let it fly. The boy stood firm and still. He was not afraid, for he had all faith in his father's skill. The apple whistled through the air. It struck the apple fairly in the center and carried it away. The people who saw it shouted with joy. As Tell was turning away from the place, an arrow which he had hidden under his coat dropped to the ground. "'Fellow!' cried Gessler. "'What mean you with this second arrow?' "'Tyrant!' was Tell's proud answer. "'This arrow was for your heart, if I had hurt my child.' And there is an old story that, not long after this, Tell did shoot the tyrant with one of his arrows, and thus he sent his country free. Arnold Winkelried A great army was marching into Switzerland. If it should go much farther, there would be no driving it out again. The soldiers would burn the towns, they would rob the farmers of their grain and sheep, they would make slaves of the people. The men of Switzerland knew all this. They knew they must fight for their homes and their lives, and so they came from the mountains and valleys to try what they could to do to save their land. Some came with bows and arrows, some with scythes and pitchforks, some with only sticks and clubs, but their foes kept in line as they marched along the road. Every soldier was fully armed. As they moved and kept close together, nothing could be seen of them but their spears and shields and shining armor. What could the poor country people do against such foes as these? We must break their lines, cried their leader, for we cannot harm them while they keep together. The bowmen shot their arrows. 
but they glanced off from the soldiers' shields. Others tried clubs and stones, but with no better luck. The lines were still unbroken. The soldiers moved steadily onward. Their shields lapped over one another. Their thousand spears looked like so many long bristles in the sunlight. What cared they for sticks and stones and huntsmen's arrows? If we cannot break their ranks, said the Swiss, we have no chance for fight, and our country will be lost. Then a poor man, whose name was Arnold Winkelried, stepped out. On the side of yonder mountain, said he, I have a happy home. There my wife and children wait for my return. But they will not see me again, for this day I will give my life for my country. And do you, my friends, do your duty, and Switzerland shall be free. With these words he ran forward. Follow me, he cried to his friends. I will break the lines, and then let every man fight as bravely as he can. He had nothing in his hands, neither club, nor stone, nor other weapon. But he ran straight onward to the place where the spears were thickest. Make way for liberty, he cried, as he dashed right into the lines. A hundred spears were turned to catch him upon their points. The soldiers forgot to stay in their places. The lines were broken. Arnold's friends rushed bravely after him. They fought with whatever they had in hand. They snatched spears and shields from their foes. They had no thought of fear. They only thought of their homes and their dear native land. And they won at last. Such a battle no one ever knew before. But Switzerland was saved, and Arnold Winkelried did not die in vain. The Bell of Atri Atri is the name of a little town in Italy. It is a very old town, and is built halfway up the side of a steep hill. A long time ago, the king of Atri bought a fine large bell, and had it hung up in a tower in the marketplace. A long rope that reached almost to the ground was fastened to the bell. The smallest child could ring the bell by pulling upon this rope. "'It is the bell of justice,' said the king. When at last everything was ready, the people of Atri had a great holiday." All the men and women and children came down to the marketplace to look at the bell of justice. It was a very pretty bell, and was polished until it looked almost as bright and yellow as the sun. How we should like to hear it ring, they said. Then the king came down the street. Perhaps he will ring it, said the people, and everybody stood very still and waited to see what he would do. But he did not ring the bell. He did not even take the rope in his hands. When he came to the foot of the tower, he stopped and raised his hand. "'My people,' he said, "'do you see this beautiful bell? "'It is your bell, but it must never be rung except in case of need. "'If any one of you is wronged at any time, "'he may come and ring the bell, "'and then the judges shall come together at once "'and hear his case and give him justice. "'Rich and poor, old and young, all alike may come, "'but no one must touch the rope unless he knows he has been wronged.' Many years passed by after this. Many times did the bell in the marketplace ring out to call the judges together. Many wrongs were righted. Many ill-doers were punished. At last the hempen rope was almost worn out. The lower part of it was untwisted. Some of the strands were broken. It became so short that only a tall man could reach it. This will never do, said the judges one day. What if a child should be wronged? It could not ring the bell to let us know it. They gave orders that a new rope should be put upon the bell at once, a rope that should hang down to the ground, so that the smallest child could reach it. But there was not a rope to be found in all Atri. They would have to send across the mountains for one, and it would be many days before it could be brought. What if some great wrong should be done before it came? 
How could the judges know about it if the injured one could not reach the old rope? Let me fix it for you, said a man who stood by. He ran into his garden, which was not far away, and soon came back with a long grapevine in his hands. This will do for a rope, he said, and he climbed up and fastened it to the bell. The slender vine, with its leaves and tendrils still upon it, trailed to the ground. Yes, said the judges, it is a very good rope. Let it be as it is. Now, on the hillside above the village, there lived a man who had once been a brave knight. In his youth he had ridden through many lands, and he had fought in many a battle. His best friend through all that time had been his horse, a strong, noble steed that had borne him safe through many a danger. But the knight, when he grew older, cared no more to ride into battle. He cared no more to do brave deeds. He thought of nothing but gold. He became a miser. At last he sold all that he had, except his horse, and went to live in a little hut on the hillside. Day after day he sat among his money-bags, and planned how he might get more gold. And day after day his horse stood in his bare stall, half-starved and shivering with cold. "'What is the use of keeping that lazy steed?' said the miser to himself one morning. "'Every week it costs me more to keep him than he is worth. "'I might sell him, but there is not a man who wants him.' I cannot even give him away. I will turn him out to shift for himself, and pick grass by the roadside. If he starves to death, so much the better. So the brave old horse was turned out to find what he could among the rocks in the barren hillside. Lame and sick, he strolled along the dusty roads, glad to find a blade of grass or a thistle. The boys threw stones at him, the dogs barked at him, and in all the world there was no one to pity him. One hot afternoon, when no one was upon the street, the horse chanced to wander into the marketplace. Not a man nor child was there, for the heat of the sun had driven them all indoors. The gates were wide open. The poor beast could roam where he pleased. He saw the grapevine rope that hung from the bell of justice. The leaves and tendrils upon it were still fresh and green, for it had not been there long. What a fine dinner they would be for a starving horse! He stretched his thin neck and took one of the tempting morsels in his mouth. It was hard to break it from the vine. He pulled at it, and the great bell above him began to ring. All the people in Atri heard it. It seemed to say, "'Someone has done me wrong. Someone has done me wrong. Oh, come and judge my case. Oh, come and judge my case, for I've been wronged.' The judges heard it. They put on their robes and went out through the hot streets to the marketplace. They wondered who it could be that would ring the bell at such a time. When they passed through the gate, they saw the old horse nibbling at the vine. Ha! cried one. It is the miser's steed. He has come to call for justice, for his master, as everybody knows, has treated him most shamefully. He pleads his cause as well as any dumb brute can, said another. And he shall have justice, said the third. Meanwhile, a crowd of men and women and children had come into the marketplace, eager to learn what cause the judges were about to try. When they saw the horse, all stood still in wonder. Then everyone was ready to tell how they had seen him wandering on the hills, unfed, uncared for, while his master sat at home, counting his bags of gold. "'Go, bring the miser before us,' said the judges. And when he came, they bade him stand and hear their judgment." This horse has served you well for many a year, they said. He has saved you from many a peril. He has helped you gain your wealth. 
Therefore we order that one half of all your gold shall be set aside to buy him shelter and food, a green pasture where he may graze, and a warm stall to comfort him in his old age. The miser hung his head, and grieved to lose his gold, but the people shouted with joy, and the horse was led away to his new stall and a dinner such as he had not had in many a day. How Napoleon Crossed the Alps About a hundred years ago there lived a great general whose name was Napoleon Bonaparte. He was the leader of the French army, and France was at war with nearly all the countries around. He wanted very much to take his soldiers into Italy, but between France and Italy there are high mountains called the Alps, the tops of which are covered with snow. "'Is it possible to cross the Alps?' said Napoleon. The men who had been sent to look at the passes over the mountains shook their heads. Then one of them said, "'It may be possible, but—' "'Let me hear no more,' said Napoleon. "'Forward to Italy!' People laughed at the thought of an army of sixty thousand men crossing the Alps, where there was no road. But Napoleon waited only to see that everything was in good order, and then he gave the order to march. The long line of soldiers and horses and cannon stretched for twenty miles— when they came to a steep place where there seemed to be no way to go farther, the trumpet sounded, Charge! Then every man did his best, and the whole army moved right onward. Soon they were safe over the Alps. In four days they were marching on the plains of Italy. The man who has made up his mind to win, said Napoleon, will never say impossible. The Story of Cincinnatus there was a man named Cincinnatus who lived in a little farm not far from the city of Rome. He had once been rich and had held the highest office in the land, but in one way or another he had lost all his wealth. He was now so poor that he had to do all the work on his farm with his own hands. But in those days it was thought to be a noble thing to till the toil. Cincinnatus was so wise and just that everybody trusted him and asked his advice, and when anyone was in trouble, and did not know what to do, his neighbors would say, Go and tell Cincinnatus, he will help you. Now there lived among the mountains, not far away, a tribe of fierce, half-wild men, who were at war with the Roman people. They persuaded another tribe of bold warriors to help them, and then marched toward the city, plundering and robbing as they came. They boasted that they would tear down the walls of Rome, and burn the houses, and kill all the men, and make slaves of the women and children. At first the Romans, who were very proud and brave, did not think there was much danger. Every man in Rome was a soldier, and the army which went out to fight the robbers was the finest in the world. No one stayed at home with the women and children and boys, but the white-haired fathers, as they were called, who made the laws for the city, and a small company of men who guarded the walls. Everybody thought it would be an easy thing to drive the men of the mountains back to the place where they belonged. But one morning, five horsemen came riding down the road from the mountains. They rode with great speed, and both men and horses were covered with dust and blood. The watchman at the gate knew them, and shouted to them as they galloped in, Why did they ride thus, and what happened to the Roman army? They did not answer him, but rode into the city and along the quiet streets, and everybody ran after them, eager to find out what was the matter. Rome was not a large city at that time, and soon they reached the marketplace where the white-haired fathers were sitting. Then they leaped from their horses and told their story. Only yesterday, they said, our army was marching through a narrow valley between two steep mountains. 
All at once a thousand savage men sprang out from among the rocks before us and above us. They had blocked up the way, and the pass was so narrow that we could not fight. We tried to come back, but they had blocked up the way on this side of us too. The fierce men of the mountains were before us and behind us, and they were throwing rocks down upon us from above. We had been caught in a trap. Then ten of us sent spur to our horses, and five of us forced our way through, but the other five fell below the spears of the mountain men. And now, O Roman father, send help to our army at once, or every man will be slain, and our city will be taken. What shall we do? said the white-haired fathers. Whom can we send but the guards and the boys? And who is wise enough to lead them, and thus save Rome? All shook their heads and were very grave, for it seemed as if there was no hope. Then one said, Send for Cincinnatus, he will help us. Cincinnatus was in the field ploughing when the men who had been sent to him came in great haste. He stopped and greeted them kindly and waited for them to speak. Put on your cloak, Cincinnatus, they said, and hear the words of the Roman people. Then Cincinnatus wondered what they could mean. Is all well with Rome? he asked, and he called to his wife to bring him his cloak. She brought the cloak, and Cincinnatus wiped the dust from his hands and arms, and threw it over his shoulders. Then the men told their errand. They told him how the army, with all the noblest men of Rome, had been entrapped in the mountain pass. They told him about the great danger the city was in. Then they said, The people of Rome make you their ruler, and the ruler of their city, to do with everything as you choose. And the fathers bid you come at once, and go out against our enemies, the fierce men of the mountains." So Cincinnatus left his plough standing where it was, and hurried to the city. When he passed through the streets and gave orders as to what should be done, some of the people were afraid, for they knew he had all power in Rome to do what he pleased. But he armed the guards and the boys, and went out at their head to fight the fierce mountain men, and free the Roman army from the trap into which it had fallen. A few days afterward there was great joy in Rome. There was good news from Cincinnatus— the men of the mountain had been beaten with great loss. They had been driven back into their own place. And now the Roman army, with the boys and the guards, was coming home with banners flying and shouts of victory, and at their head rode Cincinnatus. He had saved Rome. Cincinnatus might have then made himself king, for his word was law, and no man dared lift a finger against him. But before the people could thank him enough for what he had done, he gave back the power to the white-haired Roman fathers, and went again to his little farm and plough. He had been the ruler of Rome for sixteen days. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and share our podcast with a friend. Stay connected by following us on Facebook at facebook.com slash enchantedlibrary. If you'd like to support the work we do, you can visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash enchantedlibrary. We appreciate your support. Until next time, friends, happy reading.